again, I want to welcome you this morning. Pastor Tony is um, with his family in Chicago. Josh has graduated from Moody Bible Institute, so I'm exciting. Yeah, make sure, uh, make sure you congratulate uh, Josh when you see him. Great accomplishment there. Good. So I've titled my message, Never, 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 No, Never. Now, it won't make a whole lot of sense till we get near the end of the message, but I thought I'd give you the title ahead of time anyhow. Good. So um, back in the early 80s, I uh, heard about a young man before I'd actually met him. Uh, my wife and I were running a group home in Queens Village, working with Catholic Charities. And um, so when the boys went to school during the day, I'd drive out to Syosset, I'd work on the maintenance crew, and then come home and start my regular shift with the kids, the guys. And, um, <clears throat> but I heard of this young man before I met him. His name was Tony Brown. And I'd heard of Tony by reputation. And Tony was the bad dude on campus. He was the kid that all the residents feared him. And so did the staff. Tony had a reputation for outbursts of anger that were destructive and hurt people and all kinds of things. So I didn't, I'd heard about him. I kind of circulated through the campus, but I'd never actually met him. And then um, <clears throat> one day, so I'm working maintenance. Remind, just remember that, okay? I'm on the maintenance crew. I'm not childcare staff, all that. So Dr. Goldstein, who was a principal of the school on grounds, calls myself and this other guy, my worker, my partner, Joe, uh, into his office. He says, um, Tony Brown won't come to school today. So I want you guys to go over and get him and bring him to school. And Joe and I look at each other like, <laughs> can't we like do painting or, you know, <laughs> something. So anyhow, we go. Now Joe was, um, Joe was kind of low to the ground, but very wide. He was a husky guy, you know what I mean? So, and I was much thinner and in better shape than I am now for sure. Early 80s. All right, so we walk across campus. I have the same concerns that Joe has, because I know this can be an extremely confrontational situation. So Joe says, what are we going to do? Now, Joe is worrying, and I'm praying. All right, good combination. So I said, let's do this, Joe. Let's just go in, the, let's, let's just go in, his, in his room. We'll tell him that you have to go to school today. It's not optional. And so you have a choice, Tony. It's all in your hands. So we went into the room. We said, Tony, uh, yeah, we got a call from Dr. Goldstein. He wants you in school today. So you're going to school today. And we're going to let you be in control of the choice. But either way, you're going to school. So I said, you got five minutes to get yourself out of bed, get dressed, and get on your way to school. Joe's looking at me like, are you crazy? What's our other option? So we leave. We don't really hear anything, but all of a sudden, five minutes later, the door opens. Tony's dressed, and he goes to school. I was praying hard, man, because I did not want to get in a physical 
confrontation with this kid. He was well-built. I mean, he looked older than 15 for sure. And I knew that type of uh, reputation he had. So <clears throat> a couple months later, uh, we get notified that Tony's going to come and live with us in the group home. Oh, great. <laughs> so, um, but at that, at that point, we had a chance to, to read his file. And Tony had quite a story. His mom, when he was two or three years old, they were living in the city, knocked on the neighbor's door and said, I'm going to the store. I just got to grab something. Can you just watch him? And she never came back. So he went into foster care. He went into foster home, the foster home. Nobody could really control him. And then he ended up being institutionalized. So he's living in the house and he's doing pretty good. You know, he's doing all right. And then... Um, He's checking it out. I know what he's doing. He's kind of, you know, figuring out how much he's going to be able to get away with over here. So he buys this. You remember the big boom box? Oh, yeah. Tony buys a big one, saved his money, spent like 280 bucks in, in the early 80s. So it was a big, big speakers on it. You know, he looked good holding it. But uh, one night he, he uh, some of the kids decided that they were going to go to the next neighborhood over, Hollis, Queens. And I said to Tony, I said, Tony, don't take your radio. Why not? Somebody's going to take it off you. No way, he says. I'm not giving this thing up. So they're gone for about a half an hour. All of a sudden, the other kids that are in the house come running home, and they said, Tony got his box robbed. You know, and they, they know what's going to happen. Tony comes in the house. He's got that look in his eye. He says, Can I, I got to use the phone. I got to call my father. Dials a number, has a whole conversation. Dad, I got robbed. Come over, bring the gun, the whole thing. And then he gets up from the desk. Remember the old rotary phone? Man, he slammed that thing down so hard, I was, I was positive he broke it. See, the problem was he had no dad. It was a whole conversation that he had in his head, but he had nobody to back him up. And they yelled out, I'm going to break. I'm going to break. So I'm looking around real quick. I mean, we've got nice French doors in this house. I'm thinking, oh, man, here we go. And, uh, well, you come back next week. I'll tell you how it, <laughs> how it worked out. No, no. <clears throat> so uh, I know if I get involved in this situation, it's going to be a physical altercation, which that was part of what I did. So I had to be up for it, you know what I mean, Whatever, however it went. But the way it was resolved is my wife went over and put her hand on his shoulder and said, Tony, let's, let's take a walk outside. And he did. I was so thankful. <laughs> <laughs> Tony had a whole life of rejection and abandonment. And I want to talk to you about that this morning. And maybe... <clears throat> You've been through some of that. Maybe not ex as extreme as Tony was. Now, it didn't turn out well for Tony. He actually wasn't able to stay in the house very long because the, the, the whole idea of the group home was we had kids that were never going to go back home. There was, there was not an option. Home was not something that they could work towards. It was just they were not going home. They were getting ready to phase out of the program, age out. So <clears throat> the whole idea of the home was we were going to teach them living skills, how to cook, 
how to clean, how to take care of yourself, how to manage your bank account, things like that. Well, Tony hadn't even been in public school for years. So the first day he goes, he gets in an altercation with a teacher, picks up a desk and, th and throws it across the room. Tony didn't last very long with us because he just didn't fit into that setting. He couldn't function outside of the confines of the uh, residential center. And the last I heard was that he got an altercation um, with one of the other residents and hit him with a pipe, and so they had to, had to take him away. I don't know. I never found out what happened to him. But his whole life was based on rejection and abandonment. As I read through his file, I could begin to understand some of the places that he was at and some of the things he was going to. There was no excuse for his behavior, but that's the only way he could function, you know? And so I want to talk to you about that this morning. Now, most of us have experienced rejection at one time or another, but many of us have not uh, really understood uh, the effects that it can have on our lives. The rejection you face may have been something that uh, was relatively minor or it may have been something so devastating that it's affected you in your whole life and your relationships. Here's some common uh, examples of rejection. Maybe you weren't chosen to play on a sports team. Uh, your first boyfriend or girlfriend failed to show up for an important date and never gave you a reason. You were not accepted at the college of your choice. You were let go from a job uh, for no good reason. Far worse examples than these are the pain that comes from not feeling a parent's love. A sense that you're not wanted, an angry divorce, a spouse that's left, you were abused, you suffered public humiliation, you were passed over for promotion that you deserved. And experiences like this can leave us with some permanent wounds whether we're aware of it or not. Rejection by definition is re, uh, refused to accept or acknowledge, to throw, up, throw out as useless or worthless, to discard. Rejection can also come and also mean the absence of meaningful love. Being rejected doesn't mean that there was no love involved or no love at all, but for other reasons, it was not a fulfilling, edifying type of love. When we're not loved the way we need to be, we feel a sense of rejection. Result of this type of rejection can lead us to really have impaired ability to give or receive love. So a person can actually pass this on in their life. Sometimes rejection is subtle, unintentional, unrecognized, unavoidable, or maybe all of the above. Let's look this morning very quickly at the overprotected child. The overprotected child is not allowed to make decisions uh, appropriate to their age. So they develop little confidence in themselves or the decision-making process. The parents are telling, by, telling them by default that they're not capable of making decisions. It's not that the parents don't love them and care for them, it's sometimes they care for them too much, and won't let them fail, won't let them make mistakes. But it, it, it 
it damages their self, uh, self-image. And they can develop an inferiority complex. Obviously, um, this was unintentional. And often the parents or the child don't even recognize what's going on. But the point is, every one of us here this morning has experienced rejection at one time or another, and maybe in different degrees. Rejection occurring in early childhood and the severity of that rejection usually determines the factors and the amount of damage sustained by that rejected person. People who live out of the buried pain of rejection will try to validate their lives in many ways. Rejection can also result in either withdrawal from deeper relationships. I don't want to be hurt anymore, so I'm not going to open myself up to that possibility. And so we, you know, a relationship can maybe go so far, and once we feel like it's going a little bit too far or we begin to feel uncomfortable, we withdraw and hold back. Or maybe it's inappropriate dependence on others for acceptance and meaning. To overcome rejection, people frequently seek identity and acceptance based on achievements. If I can just get that one thing, if I can just have enough money, if I can just get the right people around me, if I can just get some kind of power, position, or accomplishment in my life. These are all exterior qualifications um, that are used to gain acceptance. Now, there's nothing wrong with, you know, striving for things in life and, get, and being better at it. But when it, when it becomes that one thing that motivates us and, and because we're trying to overcompensate maybe for, you know, a situation that we have in our life, it's difficult. And those who struggle with rejection can also become what we call fixers. Those are the people that they can fix anything. They can fix anything in your life. In the meantime, they're struggling with their own uh, disabilities and, and things like that. Being rejected or having a sense of rejection or developing a rejection complex can lead to feelings of abandonment. Being abandoned is one of the most painful ways to have your heart broken. There's nothing quite like being left alone, apart from all you should know and, and love, with the feeling that there's no hope of being reunited. Abandonment by definition is to forsake completely, to desert, to leave behind, and, make, and, and that it be final. Abandonment can break the heart and make a person hurt and angry. Some people respond by becoming calloused and bitter. Some people respond by falling into despair and hopelessness. In extreme cases, of rejection and abandonment can lead to what we, what we call is attachment deficit disorder. That's the inability to really make healthy relationships, healthy attachments. They can't connect on an emotional level. Why does rejection and abandonment wound so deeply? Because it attacks the very person that we are. It destroys our self-esteem and attacks who we are, and affects our purposes in life. It causes emotional wounds that, if not healed, will grow and fester into more serious wounds. 
The root of rejection is actually kind of incredibly simple. It's damage from rejection as a result of misplaced identity. Whenever we base our identity on somebody or something other than what God's word says and has to say about us, it makes us vulnerable to damage by rejection. Many people base their identity on what their parents, teachers, friends, employers, coaches think of them. Now, these positions or these people always play important parts in people's lives, but sometimes they don't realize. See, you could come from a situation where you're already wounded, and all somebody has to say is something little, and it's like it brings you right back to that place. You feel it again, you know? And sometimes it's unintentional. And, and you know, our parents and our teachers and those that we've been involved with growing up, they have a tremendous potential to really build us up or sometimes, not even knowing, tear us down. And children can be set up for a performance-orientated kind of bondage that develops later in life. If a parent doesn't give unconditional love, but their love was based on grades, behavior, performance, it causes difficulty. Because if you don't measure up, then you're not going to get that validation that you need. The key to overcoming rejection and abandonment is to really solve the identity problem. Anytime we base our identity on what others think of us, we're virtually trusting that person with our self-esteem. So I need to ask this morning, what's the opposite of rejection and abandonment? It's acceptance. This is precisely what God offers you and I when we come to him through giving or surrendering or yielding our life to Christ. Ephesians 1, verse 3 through 6, explains God's acceptance of us in Christ. It said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. It says in that passage that he chose us. Some people like think that they chose God or they found God. God was never lost. He didn't have to be found. He searches us out and he chooses us. And that says he predestinates us for adoption to himself. I love the uh, New King James Version of uh, Ephesians 1.6. It says, he has made us accepted in the beloved. Now, the original Greek word accepted is a very powerful, much stronger word than just approval. It's translated highly favored one. See, when God looks at us, he sees us as highly favored. It's vital that we base our identification, our identity, who we are, on what God's word says about us. When we kind of accept and believe um, this should make us really um, in, a, in a place where we don't allow that rejection and abandonment 
to take over in our lives. Now, there'll be times in our lives when we feel abandoned and alone. The sense of and fear of abandonment can leave us feeling empty and angry. In the midst of the heartache of abandonment, we can be thankful because not only will God use that pain in our life to shape us into his image, but he will reveal to us that though everyone else fail us and hurt us, he will remain faithful. If there's one thing that we can count on today, it's God will remain faithful. Psalm 27, 10 says, even if your mother and father abandon you, I will never forget you. I like the ESV translation of that verse. It says, but the Lord will take me in. Everyone else forsakes me. Everyone else abandoned me. Everyone else rejects me. It says the Lord will take us in. And then in Isaiah 53, 3, it says, this is about prophetic uh, scripture about Jesus. He says, it says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Despised, rejected, a man of sorrows. See, Jesus can relate to our abandonment and our rejection. He experienced that in his own life. The Bible tells us that he was rejected in his own hometown. Could, could any good thing come out of Nazareth? When he entered Jerusalem, and we just kind of celebrated this a few weeks ago at the Easter season, when he entered Jerusalem, they said, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. They worshiped him. And a week later, they were crying out, crucify him, crucify him. We know from the Garden of Gethsemane experience, Jesus spent the night in great agony over the burden that he would have to bear on the cross. And the disciples couldn't even pray with him one hour. The Bible tells us that he's, his, his perspiration was drops of blood. Extremely emotional condition, but that's what Jesus was going through. And then after spending three intimate years at his side, Judas betrays him with a kiss. Peter denied his friend and master three times as Jesus stood trial before the rulers of Israel. And then we continue on in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We pick those words out. Stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed. All things that someone would feel that were very painful. And then we come to verse 5 and it says that, that the chastisement that was upon him has brought us peace. The punishment that Jesus suffered has brought us peace. And it says, and by his wounds were healed. So no matter what our wound is today, no matter what we've been through in life, Jesus can identify with that. And on the cross, we know that Jesus became sin for us. 
And for the, for the first time in all eternity, his heavenly father had to turn away from him. He knew what it was to be separated from God for the first time ever. Jesus knows what rejection and abandonment feels like. But Jesus went willingly to the cross so that we may have a way to be reconciled to our Father God. Jesus paid the price uh, uh, once and for all. He died in your place and he died in my place. He took your sin and my sin upon himself so that I can stand and you can stand guiltless and unashamed before our Creator. When you feel abandoned or rejected, as you pass through those dark moments in your life, remember all that Jesus went through for you and I. And Jesus offers acceptance and love and healing for our wounded souls through the exchange of the cross. He experienced rejection and abandonment by God and man in order that we might be accepted by God and become part of God's family. He suffered shame so that we might share in his glory. He died so that we might have life. Every level of rejection and abandonment we could ever experience, Jesus has been through. And that's why he can identify with it. And we need to begin to ask ourselves and, and understand who we are in Christ and the person that God has formed in you. Your identity must come from him and what his word says about you. And if we begin to believe and walk in all that we are in Christ, there's no room for rejection and abandonment. It has to go. People will hurt us and leave us and do things wrong to us because they are imperfect. We live in a sinful world. We're going to be hurt. But God is perfect. And when people fail us, rather than grow bitter, we need to use it as an opportunity to highlight God's faithfulness. The unchanging truth is that we're unconditionally loved, totally accepted, and complete in Christ. Which brings us kind of to our clothing thoughts and key scripture. What does it mean when God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you? Hebrews 13, 5. This promise was first given to Israel and Joshua when they were about to enter into the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 31. The odds seemed impossible that Joshua and the people would be able to go in and take the land. But see, God said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And that's why they were victorious. And God knew that we would doubt this promise so he wrapped it up into five negatives or, um, you know, double negatives, so to speak. And this is kind of where we come to the title. Twice he repeats two Greek words that mean no. And then he adds another word that also means no. And he says, I'll never, 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 no, never leave you or forsake you. Now, I, I remember Winston Churchill said never three times. God takes it to a whole different level. <laughs> it's hard to bring out the proper emphasis in English. It's as if God is saying, I will never, 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 never leave you or forsake you. Absolutely not. The promise is preceded by a command, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. See, God knew that if 
we couldn't get what we needed in a certain area. We're going to try to fulfill it another way. And so some people will strive for that. They'll strive for money. They'll strive for position and, and, and power to, to be able to make up that deficit in their lives. And instead of trusting the riches or material goods, which will ultimately fail us, we need to believe and should take hope in what God says. Now, it's interesting because the Greek word for leave means to send back, let go, relax, loosen, and desist from. And the word forsake means to leave behind, to abandon, or desert. When we really understand these two words, um, they should bring us encouragement that God will never leave us or forsake us. Let's kind of try to put those two words together. And God is saying, I will never send you back, let go of you, loosen my grip on you, give up on you, desist from being around you. He's also saying, I will never leave you behind, abandon you, or desert you. Now, it's interesting because this wasn't the first time that God spoke this promise. Jacob, back in Genesis chapter 28, he had, um, he had deceived his brother, took his inheritance. He deceived his father and got his brother's blessing. All right? And he's on the run now. His brother wants to kill him. Things are not going well in his life. He's done the wrong thing. And he's on the run for two days. And the Bible says that a rock is his pillow and he's just under the stars. And God speaks to him. Which totally amazes me because, I mean, if I was God, I wouldn't say these words over his life. But God is so unique, so amazing. And this is what he says to the deceiver. I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised. Wow. Even in that state, God is committed to never leaving or forsaking. And God provides for all our needs, but he goes a little further, and he provides us with his very presence. And if this doesn't encourage you and bring greater understanding of God's faithfulness and commitment to you and I, I don't know what would. So what should our response be to I will never leave you nor forsake you? Very quickly this morning, I just want you to consider three ways. Respond with confidence. This verse should give us confidence. It should give us a reassurance that no matter where you're at in life and no matter what's happening around you, God is committed to never leaving you or forsaking you. Others may abandon us. Others may leave us. Others may turn their back on us. But God says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. You can be confident that God will protect and provide for you. You can be confident that God will help you make it to the end. You can be confident that you, he will be with you forever. There's not a moment that we need to be out of God's care. Second response is we should respond with thankfulness. When you're afraid, God says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. When you feel alone, 
God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When you go through trials and temptations, God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When everyone deserts you, God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. When you face rejection, God says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. When others abandon you, God says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And when you take your final breath, God says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. When we grab hold of this powerful truth, it should cause us and lead us to be thankful. And hopefully you can look over your life and look back and you can see times and patterns of God's faithfulness over and over again. There should be a sense of gratitude. Gratitude is a strong feeling of appreciation to someone or something for what that person has done for you. And so as we look at the cross, and we realize what Jesus went through, and he did it for us, that we can uh, receive tremendous strength and help through that. And our third response should be a response of worship. The confidence of God's promise and the thankfulness that comes from remembering God's benefits should lead us to one place or one activity, and that is worship. I pray as God allows this promise to sink deep into our hearts, that from that same heart would come authentic, genuine, pure worship, that our worship would flow back to the God who truly deserves it, the one who will never leave us nor forsake us. We're going to close the service a little differently this, uh, this morning, and I'm going to have the elders, uh, as, as we play the last song, the worship song, I'm going to have the elders come up and just stand in front. If their wives are with them, they can come. Um, I don't want you to leave here today. Because, you know, you may say, oh, God said he'd never leave us nor forsake us. I heard somebody say once, I want Jesus with a little flesh on it. You know, we're called to be a body. Called to minister to one another. Pray for one another. So I'm going to invite you this morning if... If you're there and you just, you're, you know, you just need prayer. We want to come in agreement with you. There's power in agreement. There's no reason why you should walk out of here without the reassurance that God is with you. And he'll never leave you nor forsake you. So as the uh, worship team comes this morning, I appreciate them. Um, as they play, near the end of the song, you're already standing up. Just come down and the elders are going to come up and we're just going to pray and believe God will just bring that reassurance that he's with us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. What a great promise. God bless you this morning.